Good afternoon, everyone, from the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., and welcome again to our Hindsight Up Front series on Ukraine. Our first episode was a discussion with Bob Zelik, who once served as the chief U.S. negotiator on the two post four talks on German reunification. Since Bob was essentially in the room at the time, he was able to shred the Russian false assertion that Moscow was somehow promised that NATO wouldn't expand eastward. Our next episode featured two Senate leaders, Democrat and Republican, who recently met with key Ukrainian leaders in Kyiv. They've also co-authored the historic Lend-Lease legislation that would make it easier to provide military resources to vulnerable communities in Ukraine. Today, we explore another key element in this crossroads moment, the view from Berlin. We are joined by Dr. Tobias Linder, Minister of State in Germany's Foreign Office. He previously served in the Bundestag and as security policy spokesperson for the Alliance 90 and the Greens Parliamentary Group. We also have Dr. Hope Harrison, Professor of History and International Affairs at George Washington University and also co-chair of the advisory board for the Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program. In 2000 and 2001, she was Director for European and Eurasian Affairs at the National Security Council. Mr. Minister, we'll turn to you for a few opening remarks before we take up questions, but I will say to our audience before we get going, if you'd like to have a question asked, you can send it by email at gep at wilsoncenter.org or tweet us at wilsoncentergep. Mr. Minister, the floor is all yours. Thank you, Ambassador Green. Good afternoon, Jim Washington DC from the evening in Berlin. It's uh, great to be here. Thank you very much for the attention. And many of you know that it didn't go unnoticed here in Europe that uh, some eyebrows uh, might have been raised about Europe's approach, that there might have been some misunderstandings. So it's great to discuss today about the situation in, in Ukraine and uh, how we can uh, act united. And even though we might have different roles, how we can achieve common goals. So first of all, let me be very crystal clear. There is no difference between Europe, between Germany and the US in our goals. When we when you look at the situation in Ukraine, uh, I would say there are three goals we wanna achieve. First of all, to protect Ukraine from the third violation of its territorial integrity through Russia. And our second goal is that we wanna become and preserve Ukraine as a successful Western state. And last but not least, we want to protect and to preserve the international rules-based order uh, on which the security, especially in Europe, so highly depends. Um, the Helsinki Final Act, uh, the NATO-Russia Founding Act, uh, the Charter of Paris, all those things. So to be very clear, we have clear principles, clear red lines. We are willing for dialogue with Russia but we are not willing to offer to give up those principles. I'd like to, to say a few words about what my government is doing in these days. And we believe that the strongest thing Mr. Putin might react to is something I would call economic deterrence. I mean with that to make very clear to Moscow, if Moscow should choose for invade Ukraine, it would pay a high political, strategic, and especially economic price. You have to keep in mind that there are no national sanctions in Europe. Sanctions can only be established on the EU level. 
And therefore, my government is and was working over the last weeks for a close coordination with the US government and with the governments of the European Union for a credible and unprecedented sanctions package that would clearly and, and immediately come into power if Russia should invade. As it is with um, deterrence in the military sense, and it's the same in the economic sphere, you need to be credible on the one hand. And we, as the largest economy in Europe, know that Germany has to shoulder a lot of the cost of such, such sanctions, and we are willing and committed to do so. And on the other hand, deterrence also has something with ambiguity. So to be very clear, all responses will be available, including Nord Stream 2. But we will not draw with a sharp pencil exact red lines and say, okay, if Putin uses little green man for five kilometers or if he invades, then this or that event will be triggered. There is a sanctions package. We know that Moscow is very carefully watching on this and evaluating the consequences of that but we will not make the exact um, triggers and thresholds and measures um, publicly available. Um, the other two things, how we support Ukraine and also our Eastern European allies, I want to mention Germany is the biggest bilateral donor to Ukraine. And if you include uh, the donations that are given over the European Union, where we have the largest share, it's more than 3 billion euros. So as I said, we want to, to become Ukraine a successful Western country, and we are supporting in Ukraine uh, in many things, in resilience, in uh, uh, democratic uh, institutions, but we are also supporting them on the military field. Uh, we sent advisors to Ukraine. We did training for Ukrainian officers in Germany, medical aid for wounded soldiers, and just yesterday, we handed over in Tallinn, in Estonia, a brand new military field hospital, which was paid by 100% by the German government. We are also committed uh, to the security of our Eastern NATO partners. We will almost double our troops that are sent to Lithuania um, um, with the enhanced forward presence of NATO. We will be sending fighter jets to Romania to do air policing. And we are closely and carefully watching the situation and we will adapt the NATO posture if necessary. So that, with that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm looking forward to the discussion. I believe it needs both credible economic deterrence and on the other track, uh, the will for dialogue. I think uh, the US, the NATO, the European Union, they made very clear to Moscow, we are willing to dialogue in different formats and uh, let me stop with just mentioning today there was a meeting of the Normandy format at Weiss's group here in Berlin in the guest house of our foreign ministry. Uh, within the Normandy format, uh, France, Germany, Russia and Ukraine are discussing uh, the implementation of the so-called Minsk agreements. We believe if, if there is some progress, then there is more to lose for the Russian government if they would invade. So uh, these different formats, NATO, OCE, Normandy, and also bilateral talks between the US and the, the Russian government, they are not substitutes to each other, they are complements. They, they are supporting each other. And, and that's also something in which my government is engaged. Thank you very much for listening. And now I'm looking forward to your questions. Uh, 
Dr. Linder, thank you. That was uh, very, very helpful. And you began by putting your finger on what you, you obviously, uh, your government's very much aware of, that here in the U.S., Nord Stream 2 is, has come to symbolize a perceived gap between the U.S. and, and Germany and, and perhaps Germany and other members of NATO. Um, I'd like to approach it, but perhaps a little bit differently. So, you know, the question over and over again has been presented as, what has to happen before Germany says, that's it, we're canceling Nord Stream 2? That's the question that's been presented. I'd like to ask a different question. I'd like to perhaps put it in reverse. And you touched upon some of this. Uh, you know, given that uh, uh, Russians, Russian forces and irregulars have killed some 14,000 Ukrainians over the last year, or last eight years, that Moscow was amassed more than 100,000 troops on the border, that uh, they've hit Ukraine with, with cyber attacks, and as you sort of uh, alluded to, illegally annexed Crimea and occupied the Donbass. So isn't the question, what conditions must Moscow meet before you're willing to turn Nord Stream 2 on? I mean, at what point are we willing to say, okay, it, it's fine for Nord Stream 2 uh, to be open and approved, given all the things that have happened so far? That's that's a very a, a tough and also good question. And let me be let me be very clear. You know, you said it at the beginning. Um, I'm in the German system. I'm still member of parliament. I'm also a green politician, and you know, my party was always opposed against this project for various reasons: for reasons of climate protection, but also for security reasons. The Green Party in Germany believed that this project is wrong. On the other hand, I have to recognize that the former government of Angela Merkel uh, gave permissions to build the pipeline. And the pipeline is finished in the moment. It's not in operation. It's finished. It's not against German law. I don't like that, but I have to recognize it in the end. In, in the coalition compact, we are very clear on one aspect. And we, said, and, and, and we stated, which is something which should be self-evident that, that energy projects on, on, on German soil need to be compliant with European energy law. And, and for that reason, a, a German authority, the Bundesnetzagentur, who, who is doing um, the, the certification of the pipeline, they have suspended the process and have interrupted it. When they will continue with the process, the Federal Foreign Office will also give a security assessment on the pipeline itself and we have to see how this process uh, will end up in the end. But to be also clear uh, on, on, on another issue, the, the former government, the government of Angela Merkel, um, signed something we call a joint statement with the US administration. And that statement, and my government is still committed to that statement, it is very clear that if Mr. Putin uses gas as a weapon or threatens Ukraine, um, these options to kill the pipeline is available. And so, so to be clear, and my minister was clear in front of the parliament, stopping Nord Stream 2 is an available option in terms of the sanctions package. That's all I can say today, but we can be very clear, no one in, in, in Germany, not a chancellor, no one in the government does exclude Nord Stream from being part of the sanctions package. And I believe uh, in the press conference with President Biden, uh, Chancellor Schultz was very clear on that and said there will be coordinated parallel measures 
from Europe and the U.S. in case. If I can just do a brief follow-up, because you're, you're touching, I think, upon some of the most important issues for discussion. So, you know, to me, the question is, uh, what does uh, success look like, right? So we recognize where we are right now with Russian forces, where they are, and the military exercises, where they are, and the cyber attacks. Is it in the mind of your government sufficient uh, if Russian, Russia doesn't invade, but continues to have those forces there, continues to do the mischief, cyber attacks, and military exercises? Is that sufficient to not impose sanctions and to allow the uh, pipeline to go forward? I believe the security assessment and uh, how we how we perceive uh, the security situation in the East has changed over the last years in Germany. You know that we had immense, uh, tremendous increases also in our defense spending in, in, in Germany for many years. Many Germans thought the purpose of the armed forces to the deployments uh, in, in, in the framework of the United Nations, for instance. Uh, now it's clear also to a majority of the German, German public that we need to have armed forces for, for defense, for collective defense in Europe. Um, we will have this, by the end of this year, we will have for the first time something we call a national security strategy. And we want to have a more coherent approach in our foreign and security policy. My party, I, my minister, uh, we are convinced that you cannot um, separate economic issues uh, from security issues when it comes to Russia, but also when it comes to China. And we are well aware of the fact um, that the security situation in, in Eastern Europe doesn't, doesn't have become easier and it will remain difficult. Even, even if we are successful in terms of Ukraine. And um, we, are, we are very aware of the, of the security concerns of our Eastern European allies. Uh, thank you. Um, so I'm gonna to turn to Dr. Harrison next. In addition to the biographical introduction I gave for her, she's obviously uh, uh, teaches and writes on Germany and uh, contemporary German history and I'll invite our audience when the program is done to go to our website and you can see a couple of her most recent works that she's uh, that she's done. Dr. Harrison, a question from you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ambassador Green and uh, Will Pomeranz for inviting me to join you. It's an honor to be here with you, um, uh, Staatsminister Linda. Um, especially on such a busy day in Berlin with, between the Normandy talks and also I know the leaders of the Baltic states have been there. Uh, Berlin is the center of a lot of action. So we're really, it's a privilege for us to, to have you with us virtually here in Washington. Uh, so we're all facing a challenge from uh, the Russians. They have essentially manufactured a crisis where there was no objective crisis and they keep ramping up the pressure. That puts us all, the US, Germany, the EU, NATO, in a very difficult position. And Putin, of course, knows this and is doing his best to play on it. Uh, he sees the initiative and we're all on the defensive, looking for ways to give Putin an off-ramp, a way to pull back without losing face. 
that is in all of our interests. I think it's ultimately in Putin's interest as well. So I'm wondering, do you see some options uh, to give Putin a way to pull back um, without uh, us agreeing to his maximal demands? Well, that, that, that's a good question, and I, I believe the details of the answer would be would be classified, to be honest. But that, that, that's exactly what, what what dialogue should 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 be about. Uh, even if I would even even in the moment, I would say, okay, the, the process itself might be more important at the moment than the results. So it's important that the Russians do not stand up from the negotiation table and go home, and that we don't give them the narrative for for in, for an invasion. But um, I, I believe there's, there are some incentives for Russia. There are some economic incentives. If we make the, the economic cost in terms of sanctions very clear in the case of an invasion, and there's, there's also a risk of a, of a furthermore decoupling, economic decoupling, decoupling from Russia from the rest of the West of Europe. That's also a long-term long issue. Coming back to the pipeline, you know that, that Europe is, is the... Um, the they have the main demand for Russian gas, and the Russians are highly dependent on their gas sales in terms of their economy. And if Russia would turn away from that, and you know, I, I'm from ecologist environmental party, we believe that we should abstain from gas and come to, to climate neutrality. That's a risk for Russia. But but the other incentives might be. Um, and, and I think this was done very good by the U.S. government and also by NATO when, when they sent a reply to Russia on their so-called security interests. So it would be one, one strategy, and I think that wouldn't be the best, just to say, okay, Russia, let's talk about your letter and your demands, because if you would pursue that strategy, it would become soon to an end, because you would say, okay, we cannot accept it, full stop. But our response, and you know, the response in detail is classified, but our response to say, okay, we are willing to talk about security in Europe. We are willing to talk with you about reassurance measures. We are willing to talk about arms control. We are willing to talk about new start and strategic issues as well as, as a new contract that is replacing, for, for instance, the INF contract. And you know that uh, the security in Europe is highly dependent on, 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 on the issue of substrategic nuclear missiles. So, so there is something available in the negotiations that should be also in the interest of Moscow, to be honest. And furthermore, I, I also believe that they are also... Looking down into the abyss of, of of cyber war and cyber crime and all those things, I think now there's still some window of opportunity, maybe to come to some agreements, what to do and what not to do. If you don't get this regulated, if you don't find any agreement, there's also a high risk, and and I I, I, I believe at least some in in Moscow are aware of that. So. There, 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 there might be some incentives on off-ramp, and it's in the hand of good negotiators in the next weeks um, that negotiations could be successful. I, I have no clue about it. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, 
Good question and, and good answer. Uh, you began uh, your remarks by laying out principles that we needed, that we all needed to see that uh, were compelling, right? Uh, protecting Ukraine as a country, preserving Ukraine as a success, and also preserving the rule-based order uh, in, in Europe. But I guess the question is, given where things are at right now, again, what Russia has done to date, uh, their occupation, the annexation, and the cyber attacks, do those meet the conditions of protecting Ukraine, preserving Ukraine as a success, and preserving a rule-based order? If they're able to occupy the Donbass, if they're able to continue to a, with an illegal annexation in Crimea, have we met those principles, or are, are we already in a place where much needs to be done to get to those principles? I would say those principles are at risk, to be honest. In 2014, many had been naive in the, in the European public, not only in Germany about Russia. They, they thought, okay, the Cold War has come to an end, and there's nothing to do, and they, they might be friendly, and Putin might be strange, but you know this narrative. And in 2014, we have experienced how quick things can evolve. You mentioned the Donbass, you mentioned Crimea. Uh, for my government, it is very clear there is no comeback of the status quo ante in, in, in terms of that we would be lowering the sanctions that had already been imposed and are still in action when it comes to Russia. If we are very clear that Russia is excluded from the G7. Um, and we will continue with that policy. So it, it, it is with Russia if they want to if they want to go back, but it would mean they would have go back to the status quo under. I don't believe that it's likely, but we are very clear on that. We will never ever accept the annexation of Crimea. Full stop. Very, very, very clear on that. In the moment, we we are at the brink, as you said, in risking those international principles. Russia pressures us from excluding Ukraine being a NATO member. And as even Mikhail Gorbachev said, I believe in 88 or 89 in front of the European Council, it is the independent right of a nation to decide whether they want to be part of an alliance or whether not. And this is a clear red line. It's a principle we are not willing to give up. And, and I think that's a clear message to Moscow, even in, 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 in those talks. If, if they demand this, they, they will not get it, to be very clear on that. Uh, thank you. Uh, Dr. Harrison, I'm going to turn back to you, but just a reminder to our audience that you can send questions to us by email at gep at wilsoncenter.org or tweet us at wilsoncentergep. Dr. Harrison, next question from you. Thank you. Um, I, I, I hope Russia hears the passion in, in your answer. Um, <laughs> Uh, Herr Staatsminister, that that was wonderful. <laughs> you that you remind me of how I speak to my students about this issue. Actually, that you know there is such a thing as self determination, and it can't be decided by Russia or anybody else. Uh, so I'll take um, the conversation in a little bit of a different direction, sort of the influence of of history, and even looking back at Yashka Fisher. Um, 
there has been much criticism of the German refusal to send weapons to Ukraine due to a German law against sending weapons to areas of conflict. Uh, much of the conservative, hands-off nature of German foreign policy, especially foreign security policy, stems, of course, from the legacy of the Holocaust and World War II. Uh, as a historian of contemporary Germany, I myself, uh, since the new ruling coalition and um, uh, Minister Baerbock being the foreign minister from the Greens, I've been thinking about the, the first and other time Germany had a foreign minister from the Greens from 1998 to 2005 with the Oscar Fischer. And in response, as you well know, to the atrocities carried out in the 1990s during the Yugoslav Wars, uh, ultimately, Fischer and others argued uh, that German history should be interpreted in a different way. Um, than many people had been arguing. Instead of arguing uh, that Germany must stand outside of military conflict uh, because of the Holocaust and World War II, they asserted that precisely because of that history, uh, because of what Germany had done in the past, it has a duty to stand up for smaller groups and smaller states against violence by a larger state. In that case, violence by Serbia against Bosnians and Kosovar Albanians. How important is that principle now to the Greens? And might Fisher's kind of argument be used again in the case of Russia and Ukraine? I believe the, the argument is still valid. You, you mentioned, let's talk about the elephant in the room. You mentioned the issue of delivering weapons to Ukraine or not. As, as many of you know, the U.S. has its, its regulations when it comes to arms export, especially the so-called ITAR regulations. We have our regulations, and the, that regulations are very clear. Don't send any firearms, don't send weapons uh, to crisis regions. I know that there are questions, especially about decisions of the former German government, for instance, in sending frigates to, to Egypt. Let me be very clear, that would be something that wouldn't be supported by my administration. That was the reason why this permission was given on the last day when Angela Merkel was in office. There is some reason for, for the timing on that. But let, let's be clear. If you look at the military buildup, at the military potential, of Russia, that Russia has in the border region around Ukraine, to be honest, you will not stop Mr. Putin by military means in these days. I'm clearly convinced if Putin reacts, he will react to economic pressure. And so, so my government decided, yes, we will take our responsibility. We are the largest economy in Europe. It's our duty to coordinate a sanctions package within the European Union among 27 member states that is credible and that is in line with the sanctions planned by the US government. That's our duty and I, I, I believe we delivered. The details, you know, they are classified, but I can, believe me, I can tell everybody this package is almost finalized and it could come very quickly into action. That's that's our first responsibility. Our second responsibility, and you mentioned Joschka Fischer and Kosovo, that does not mean that we 
we don't exclude any military means. As I said, we almost doubled our troops in Lithuania. We will be sending fighter jets for air policing to Romania. We are very clear in NATO when it comes to adapting the NATO posture. So, so the security of our Eastern European partners is something that, that is without any discussion and we feel responsible for that. Uh, thank you. I, I'm going to ask a, a, another question before turning it to Dr. Harrison to lead us through the uh, audience questions. Uh, slightly different uh, approach. So in recent days, we've seen a steady stream of European leaders flying to Moscow, uh, sort of standing in queue and going to see uh, President Putin. President Macron, uh, your chancellor, uh, uh, Mr. Orban, and others, isn't there a risk if we have each of the European or many European leaders going one by one that that projects uh, a sense of lack of unity in NATO? Doesn't it risk sending slightly different messages in a way that would um, suggest that, that, that Mr. Putin has cracks in the NATO alliance he can uh, exploit? I wouldn't call it a risk, but it's clearly a challenge to stay coordinated and to stay united. Uh, to, to be clear, my chancellor will not only go to Moscow, he will go to Kiev, because that's a clear sign to Mr. To Mr. Putin, who is our allied and uh, with whom we have, have to talk on, on, on very difficult issues. Um, I cannot comment, I, I cannot make any comments on the visit of Mr. Orban, to be honest. Um, but you can be assured that, that Germany and France, we are very intensively and closely coordinating our foreign policy. And when Mr. When Mr. Macron travels to, to, to Moscow, there's a close coordination between the two governments. And it's the same, it's, it's also the same when, when my chancellor or my foreign minister, you know, my foreign minister was in Kiev yesterday, uh, she was at the contact line to the Donbass uh, uh, to show and to make clear we are not talking about military units on a map. It's about people. It's about their lives. It's about people dying. It's about, and not only about soldiers, it's about families who are living at that contact line. And uh, I, I can assure you we are having almost every day phone calls or video conferences also with, with the State Department or, or with the White House in Washington. And I believe that's the challenge in these days, to stay united. Mr. Putin would clearly notice and recognize if there would be some crack in the Western alliance. But you can, you can be sure, as I said, with coordinating sanctions. That's our duty that we stay together. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Harrison, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Uh, so before I turn to uh, questions from the audience, um, I want to ask you the question that everyone has been wondering since this began. I'm sure they're betting pools on this, um, but it's unfortunately deadly serious. Uh, what do you think Putin's motive is? in manufacturing this crisis where there really wasn't one before. What is he up to? To be honest, I have some ideas, but I have no consistent clue. Um, we cannot look into the mind of Mr. Putin. He's not becoming younger. I, I believe that, that the timing of the escalation 
that's not that 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 isn't chosen randomly. You know, okay, Merkel steps out of office. There's new administration in the in the largest country in Europe, so that there there might be some possibility or some weakness. I have to disappoint Mr. Putin. There is no reason uh, to believe that we are weak or that we that we 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 are not strong and not 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 convinced. Um, the problem is, Mr. Putin is, I believe he still makes some cost-benefit analysis in his actions. That's why I'm so convinced that sanctions might work. But we might know the cost and not the exact benefit for him. The, the, the benefit for him might be something in his mind, maybe even his legacy in Russian history. And, and, and that's a dangerous point. And that's why I still believe we have to talk we have to be open for dialogue. We have to work for peace and for de-escalation each day. But we also have to keep in mind things might end up different. And in the end, there might be also an, an outcome we everyone doesn't like. But we have to be prepared for that outcome, for military escalation of the situation. Thank you. All right. I'm going to turn to some of the interesting questions that uh, people have been asking. Uh, the first is um, um, uh, we have a former OSCE ambassador to Moldova, Jennifer Brush, uh, who is she's encouraged that you have um, emphasized the importance of talks on the use of cyber hybrid warfare. Um, and her question is, it seems that right now uh, the West is focused on deterring cyber warfare. Is that the best way forward or should the Alliance also be focusing on developing our own offensive cyber warfare capabilities? I believe it, it, it needs a mixed approach. So on, on the one hand, you have to defend yourself. You have to protect your systems. You have to do it day by day. Um, on, on the other hand, the former German government, they established a cyber force in the, in, in, in the armed services. So, so in the German army, we are quite aware of the fact that cyber is a domain for military warfare. And... Um, I believe within NATO, but also in the system of the United Nations, also in bilateral talks, we should still work on and try to talk about rules when it comes to cyber. You know, we have many rules in, 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 in conventional war. We have agreements and, 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 and contracts on, on non-proliferation, on, uh, on strategic issues, on arms control, on everything on like, like that. And uh, I'm convinced the cyber domain is also risky. And at least we should, we should try. Um, and, and, and my last point is cyber is very, very highly linked, not only to the infrastructure and to, to possible risks for the infrastructure, but also to, uh, to information warfare, to disinformation. You can attack a democracy in manipulating elections, in manipulating the public opinion, in telling fake news. You know, in these days in Germany, we had a hard debate about uh, a Russian uh, TV program called Russia Today Germany. They, they don't have any permission for a TV program. They didn't even ask for a permission. That was the reason why they said, okay, if you... 
do not even apply for a permission process. We cannot allow you to, to broadcast the program. And you know that Deutsche Welle, German TV channel, as a consequence, was, was put out of Russia. But I believe Western societies, Western democracies, they have to be more resilient. So protecting against cyber means also strengthening liberal democracies and strengthening your own debates in your own country and working against misinformation. Uh, I think you're reading my mind, even though you're in Berlin and I'm here, because I was just going to raise the issue of RT in Germany and the fact that Russia recently kicked out Deutsche Welle with no notice, just suddenly they were kicked out of um, uh, Russia. Um, and one of the um, members of our audience has a question about the role of information and misinformation, disinformation, propaganda uh, in escalating the tensions uh, between Ukraine, Russia, um, NATO, etc. Um, has this kind of I don't know, you could almost call it information warfare. Um, has this impacted coordination and cooperation between the US, Germany, and other members of NATO? This is the next question from one of our listeners. And we have a, we have a very careful and close and also confidential exchange of, of, of any incidents of misinformation and information warfare with our allies within NATO, also in the transatlantic uh, relationship. So, so that's clearly an issue, especially on the European continent, especially in Germany. You know that some parts of the German society believe that we have something called a special relationship to Russia, especially in the, in, 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 in the Eastern um, states of, of, of Germany. There's still this narrative that, oh, the Russians are friends and all this. And let, and let me be clear, the Russians are great people. They have a great culture and they, 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 the people there, I don't have anything against the Russian people. I have some problems with their policy and with their government. That, 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 that's my issue. And I, I, I'm clearly convinced if you talk about national security, if you talk about a security strategy, even if you talk about foreign policy, you have to also talk about strategic communication to your domestic people. You have to explain your policies. You have to state the facts. Um, you, you have to do it as a parliamentarian in your own district. So, the, 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 you know, we have suspended conscription from the army. So many Germans didn't serve in the army right now. You have to tell them the difference between 850 German soldiers on Lithuanian soil and three Russian divisions in front of the Baltic states. That's, I believe it's easier to explain in the, in, in, in the American society, but we have to do so. And, and that's also something to, to protect and to and that's also some kind of defense, clearly. Yes, there's... Um... It's very challenging getting German public opinion, not just people in the East, um, the broader population behind um, uh, building up the military. Um, and, and yet as the, the centerpiece of Europe, that is, is so important. So it's, it's certainly a very challenging uh, situation. Uh, another question from one of our viewers um, 
says that you have argued um, that um, given that Russia has such a military superiority in the situation with Ukraine, you have said, like, what's the point in, in sending Ukraine any, any, any weapons? It, the, they, couldn't, they couldn't win. Um, uh, but this person says, however, that the purpose of providing Ukraine with more of a defensive military capacity uh, would also be to raise the cost of an invasion from Russia's perspective and therefore hopefully, you know, make it less likely um, they would invade. I can only repeat what I said. I believe if we can prevent Mr. Putin from using the military, he will react to economic costs. I believe that's the, the biggest leverage we have. I have understanding that some governments in the past, but also now, are sending weapons to Ukraine. I, I fully understand that. I don't complain about such policies. But as I said in the beginning, we all have our different national regulations when it comes to arms export. And the Germans' regulations, they are as they are. And, 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 and therefore, so I, I'm a little bit, on, on the one hand, I, I believe the risk in this debate is that, that it's going over all the other issues. And, 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 and as I said, we feel responsible for the security of Ukraine. So we do what our responsibility as the biggest economy in Europe is, working on a credible sanctions package, and supporting Ukraine, its economy, its society, its, its um, legal and governmental structures with aid. We are the biggest donor worldwide when it comes to, uh, to bilateral donations uh, for Ukraine, and we will continue with this policy. Uh, the next question has to do with Putin's efforts to uh, deepen his ties with China and kind of... Um, try to use that. Um, so the question is, what are your thoughts on the alliance between China and Russia and China proclaiming its support of Russia's foreign policy uh, at this time? How effective will China's support of Russia be in bolstering Putin's confidence about his policy toward Ukraine? Yeah, I have I have two thoughts on that. First, I believe we should watch that carefully, for sure. And we, we, we know that both the government of China as well as the government of Russia, they, they want to play inside the international rules-based order. Putin doesn't want to have any rules, I believe. China says, okay, we want to have our own rules. We want to define the rules on the, on, 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 on the international level. That's my first thought. We have to watch it carefully. My second thought is, my second point is, I don't believe that this connection, that this cooperation, that it is sustainable. Because if you look at the long-term goals of the two economies, of the two countries, if you look at the, at the policy the Chinese Communist Party is pursuing on the long term, to become the world's leading country, I don't believe that that's a sustainable cooperation and that, this, that it's something that might be risking, risky on the short term. But on the long term, I don't believe that it is sustainable. We have time for one last quick question. Okay. Uh, well, um, I guess I'm going to go with the question uh, about Gerhard Schroeder. <laughs> Sorry, but 
it is an extraordinary situation. And I'm sure it's incredibly uncomfortable for the German government and certainly for an SPD-led German government that a former chancellor of the Social Democratic Party, Gerhard Schroeder, is so close to Putin and is so enmeshed on the boards of the leading oil and gas companies uh, in Russia. Um, is, is, is Schroeder kind of on his own there, or um, does he still have lots of ties to others in Germany uh, and to business interests that also would be, um, you know, closer to Putin's side of this conflict? Uh, Dr. Harrison, you know, I'm state minister and usually I should be very careful and reluctant um, in speaking about a former German chancellor. But, but to be very clear, the statements he makes, the decision he makes, being part of the board of Gazprom, for instance, now at that timing, these are only his own decisions. He's not speaking for the government. He's even not speaking for the SPD party. I'm very happy that also, the heads of the SPD party are very clear on, on, on that issue. I believe Mr. Schroeder cares about one thing at the moment most, and, and I don't say this in my capacity as Minister of State. <laughs> I, I believe it, he cares about his banking account and, and, and the money he receives from Nord Stream and, 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 and Gazprom. And I'm honestly, you, you know, I became member of, of the Green Party when the red-green government under Schröder started. He made, during his, his, his time in the Chancellery, many good decisions, especially in foreign policy, I believe. But now it's a pity and it's disappointing that he, he, I believe he lost his sense and his, his sensitivity on such issues. And of course, he and Putin share a lot in caring about their bank accounts as perhaps, you know, a number one goal uh, thank you so much. I'll turn it back over to Ambassador Green. Great. Thank you. And uh, personal aside, this has been a great discussion. I'm very, very grateful, uh, Mr. Minister, for the time that you've taken. So Dr. Linder, Dr. Harrison, thank you both for helping us explore these very important issues. And thanks to all who have tuned in today for watching. With hindsight up front, we try to analyze history-making events as they occur applying lessons and insights in real time, not after the fact. I hope everyone will join us on February 15th for our next Hindsight Upfront. Our guest will be former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Michelle Flournoy. She'll offer her thoughts on the prospects for deterring Moscow, reinforcing Ukraine, and reaffirming NATO's role. And to see more of our collective materials on Russia, Ukraine, NATO, and Europe, please go to thewilsoncenter.org backslash hindsight Ukraine. Again, thank you to our guests. Very much appreciated. Take care, everyone.